The following lecture is from a course called Psychology 3717, uh, Memory. It's for the winter term of 2019. By the way, how the hell did it ever get to be 2019? Anyway, hope you like the class and uh, see when it's done. So uh, today I want to talk about models of memory and we've talked about a lot of different approaches, different sort of model-like things today, get a little more formal into this today. Um, there's really two types of models that we can talk about. Okay? Uh, there are models that make very specific predictions and tend to be for very specific phenomena. We've already talked about act star, act R, etc. We've talked about TLC. These are very specific things. They're just for the organization of semantic memory. They don't do really anything else. There's nothing wrong with that. That's pretty great. But they're very specific. Then there's models that look at general organizations of things, of memory itself. So the Atkinson-Schiffrin model is the classic. Uh, example of this where they're saying we want to explain all of memory. We're not just explaining semantic memory or we're not just explaining well semantic memory is pretty much the one where they just explain one thing. Though you will hear about you'll hear about one today that's mostly about list learning, though it's basically to explain all memory phenomena, but it's kind of about a specific thing. So the models that are looking at very specific things, tend to be mathematical. There will be no, well, there'll be a tiny bit of math-ish stuff today, but I wouldn't say there's math. I've tried to teach this stuff with math before, and it, it doesn't go well. Also, it doesn't go well for me, not just for the students. So it gets to the point where I look and go, oh, what happened? Oh, there's that matrix, and then I get all confused. So we're not going to do that. Go to graduate school. Learn all about this stuff and get confused then and sit there in class like, why am I here? How did I get in? So these kind of things tend to be very specific and about, and they're mathematical, and they're about a single kind of phenomenon. As interesting as that is, which is semantic memory, these kind of models, the wide-ranging ones, are trying to explain all kinds of memory. So I guess the question you could ask yourself is why would you construct the model in the first place? Well, the first thing is that models organize data. And when you look at a topic as broad as, as, as memory, you realize that, wow, there's a lot of stuff here. There's a lot of stuff here. It's not like it's just a small one thing or two things phenomena. It's, not, it's, it's a very broad thing, right? It's everything from, when we talked about this at the beginning of the term, it's everything from you know, recognizing objects quickly to being able to do problem solving. That's a pretty broad thing. So if you can organize some data, that's great. They tend to make pretty explicit predictions, and the more explicit, the better. To test if a model's any good, it has to make a prediction, and then we have to say, is that correct or is it incorrect? Right? So if it's doing that, that's a good thing. So in fact, you think about something like, remember TLC or ACTR, it would make a specific prediction, and oftentimes it would get a bunch of stuff right and something wrong. And we would say, okay, it's got a bunch of things it's doing properly. Why is it doing this thing wrong? What's doing that? And that's where, if they're mathematical things, you go in and you play with the, with the math a little bit. Um, 
they can lead to application. One of the models we'll talk about today, um, SAM, the Search of Associative Memory model, um, the key thing in that whole model is rehearsal. And it does a very good job predicting the, uh, the importance of rehearsal. And you think, what kind of application would that be? Well, you know, you think about people that have memory problems. So people who have memory problems, uh, let's say we've got someone who's had a, you know, a bump on the head, but we can also talk about people with uh, dementia of some sort. Detectives trying to solve crimes that have problems. I'm just thinking about True Detective season three. Very excited. but he's got memory problems. And most people with memory problems are actually aware of it. Even KC, I told you this, you, you could say to KC, I gave you a list of words, can you re recall them? And he would look at you kind of with a look on his face like, with this again? And he'd go, I could guess. And he'd have a, which is interesting because he knew he didn't remember things. So that's kind of a cool thing. And if that's the case, we could have something like, you could teach people strategies. So if the model says rehearsal is important, teach people to rehearse. And you say, yeah, but if it's not going to get anywhere, but what if the rehearsal isn't internal? What if the rehearsal itself is actually external? In other words, rehearsal means writing things down. Rehearsal means putting things in an app. Rehearsal means telling Alexa or Google, or if you're very wealthy, Siri, those Google, the, the, the Apple HomePod's too expensive. I really wanted one, but say, remember this, do this. I did this. Remind me in five minutes that I've turned the the stove on. And teaching that procedural task wouldn't be explicit. It wouldn't have to be explicit, would it? So these models will tell, can tell you that. So that's kind of cool. And when you think about that, the idea of organizing data and make predictions, that's what science is supposed to do. <laughs> so it's probably a pretty good idea to model. Now, it's not something that we can all do, especially these, these very mathematical things. Um, I've toyed with modeling before for something very specific, for timing in black cap chickadees. Like, it's that specific, the modeling I did. Uh, we were very successful, but it applies to timing in black cap chickadees. <laughs> Maybe other, yeah, probably other animals as well, but it, it's a very specific kind of modeling I did. So it's one phenomenon. We are, we're talking about all of cognition, like some of these things do. So let's talk about Sam, the search of associative memory. something here. Uh, All right, good. So search of associative memory, uh, this idea was originally conceived of uh, as an extension of the Atkinson-Schifrin model. It's actually Raymakers uh, and Schifrin, so in 1981. So Atkinson-Schifrin comes out, people are like, it's too simple. And we talked about this on the, on the test, right? So it's, it's, it's too simple a model. Can you be more specific with things? So what they attempted to do was actually come up with a mathematical model that makes predictions. Okay? And it's about list learning more than anything. Okay? So it's a mathematical model, and it, it has a whole bunch of assumptions that we'll go over in a second. One of the very basic ones is that memory is associative. 
That's why it's called the search of associative memory. So the way that items are stored involves associations between items and other, other things. Okay? Which is reasonable and uh, it's backed up by a lot of data. So that's not like it's a ridiculous assumption or anything. So it's really list learning. So how do you do this? How do you test this? You teach the model a list of words. Again, this is a computer program. You teach the model a list of words. And you ask the model using, say, something like recognition, was this word on the list? Yes or no? Or is it an old item or a new item? In other words, old is one you've seen before, new is one you haven't seen. Or you can ask the model to actually generate the words that you've given it. And you're thinking, well, if you just typed it into a computer, wouldn't you be able to know that the model actually has these parameters in it that make things decay, et cetera, okay? So it's looking at list learning, which, I mean, it makes some sense. Let's look at something that we study a great deal. We study list learning all the time. To this day, one of my honor students is doing list learning for, one of his, for his uh, honors project. Like he's actually going to, that people are gonna be given a list of words and to recall them and, and also do word fragment completion. Because, you know, stick with the classics. So you study the list and by you I mean your computer. And then you do recognition or recall, again, the computer. We have a lot of data on people. So this is pretty easy because you, well, the modeling itself isn't easy, but the idea of testing it's easy because you can say, does the same thing happen with the model that happens with people? Is it the same pattern of errors? Do we get the same phenomena? Right? Do we get things like a primacy effect and a recency effect? If we inhibit rehearsal, Brown-Peterson, do we get rid of the primacy effect? Or sorry, the recency effect? Things like that. Pretty easy, right? Pretty cool. Primacy and recency effect, I guess, Brown-Peterson. So here's how it works. There's a bunch of assumptions for this model. I already gave you the first one. The idea was it's all about uh, associations. But target items, that's the items that the program is learning, that the model is learning, are viewed in relation to the memory representations of all the other items learned. So if you've got an item like tree, that's one of the words, okay? So tree comes up for the, for the computer model. It then associates tree with all the other items that have already been learned. So let's say another item that was on there was associated. First is tree, next is coffee. So coffee is associated with tree, for example. Now the context is also associated. Now part of this is in a computer model, you have to just put that in as a parameter. But if you're thinking about a person, the context is things like, well, it is the other words around it, but it's also, it could be emotional states. It could be the lighting in the room. It could be, have you just had a sip of coffee? Right? So it can be all those things. It can be, are you still trying to figure out why Maroon 5 were on the Super Bowl? Final score last night, Maroon 5, Rams 3. 
So, not my joke. Which is good, because absolutely nobody thought it was funny, so. So the to-be-learned items are associated also on their own with the context. So not only are items associated with each item and the context, they're associated directly with the context. I find it easy to think of this kind of thing, and it's not, this isn't exactly what they're doing, but I think of it easy to think of this kind of thing like we do with, with, with we do context learning with rats, and we teach them one set of associations in one color, one, uh, in a white box, another set of associations in a black box, and they don't transfer. Okay, so that, just like how, you think about this, you do better on a final exam if that final exam is given in the same room where you took the course. There's data on that like crazy, by the way. I wish we all were, you just were all tested in, in, your, in your, the class where you were given the final exam, or whatever, you know what I mean, where you learned the class. Yes, go ahead. So when you're saying that things are associated with context, Yes. In, when you're talking about these models, yes. the context is something that you have to program. Yeah, you have to, it's partially that, but it's also the other words around it. Yeah, I know it's, okay. it's yeah. kind of a weird thing to think of, but that is part of the context. It's like, it's yeah. like well, think about Ebbinghaus, right? What comes before, what comes after, that's yeah. an important thing, right? Yeah. So it is that too. But yeah, you have to program that in there. Okay. I think you're kind of getting on an important point here, and that's that there's a lot of assumptions in this model, yeah. which is sometimes a weakness. When words are presented, they are rehearsed. Again, it's the computer program we're doing the rehearsing. It's not actually rehearsing, but there's a rehearsing rehearsal uh, parameter, it's called in the model, and you're telling it how many times it can rehearse per second. And you make it reasonable. Like you say, well, it's a computer. How about a billion? No, it's, you know, it's three per second or something, and you would, you would, fit, you would do that yourself. You would say, there's rehearsal. This is how much rehearsal there is per second or per item or whatever. Words have a familiarity value. Now, the familiarity value is, is this an old word or a new word? Have I seen this word before? And it is a linear combination, the familiarity value, of all the other, of, of all the associations which can range from zero to one. So there's these associations with the context, associations with other words, etc. And those values range between zero and one. One meaning perfect memory, zero meaning no association. Okay? How familiar is this word? Does this make sense so far? I know it's kind of strange, but different. New decisions are based on the familiarity value. There's some threshold when you ask the model, let's say the model has a threshold of, I don't know, 0.4. And anything above 0.4, the model says, yeah, I saw that one before. And anything below 0.4, the model says, nope. So let's say tree was one of the words. Okay. So tree in itself, because of the rehearsal, has a value, let's say, of 0.1. And then we had 
Uh, we associate it with coffee, which was one of the other words. So the, the coffee to tree association is worth, well, let's say 0.2. And then the other contextual variables give it a 0.15. And we add these up and we get, oh, we get 0.35. And then the thing replies, even though it is a familiar word, it says no. In that case. Okay. No, that was not on the list. No, of course that happens. When you learn a list of words, you don't get them perfectly when I give you a recognition task. You, you depending on all kinds of things, uh, you end up saying some of them aren't on the list, even though they work. It's basically a signal detection approach to memory. You know what signal detection theory Who knows what signal detection is? Yeah, right? So that's the idea of, was there a stimulus? And you present the stimulus, and that's a correct response. You say yes. If there was a correct, it's kind of like hypothesis testing in a way, like that, that matrix. So was there, so if you reply yes, and it was on the list, correct. If you reply no, it was not on the list, correct rejection. If you reply yes, it was on the list and it wasn't on the list, that's called a false alarm. And if you reply uh, no and it was, then you made a mistake. It's a miss. That's a bad miss. Okay. So it's basically single detection. That's the idea here. So here, this is a miss. The example I made here, it's like, actually, that wasn't the list. Dave. Yep. So the model can have false alarms, too? Yeah. Oh, sure. So let's say, and the way that would work often would be something like, what about the word shrub? Oh, well, tree was there, and there's the representation of tree, the, the meaning of the word tree, because I haven't thrown that up there yet. There's a meaning part of it. The part of the representation of a word is its meaning is pretty close. Shrub is close enough to tree. Also, uh, what if uh, there was, there was a, the word grub that was on the list? Oh, semantic, uh, uh, sort of um, phonetically, that sounds similar. Oh, yeah, it was on the list. No, it wasn't. So it can make mistakes. And the, the model does make false alarms, too. Like, it's actually it's a very sophisticated thing. This was in the 1980s? Yeah, 81. Oh, God. Yeah. Oh, people wrote computer programs back then. Not everybody. Computer science. 1981 little wisps of smoke. Yeah, you're not supposed to do that. And we'd all play games, and he'd be like, you shouldn't be playing games. And then he'd go, wait a second, I can get that guy, which is pretty great. <laughs> Plus my high school football coach. All right. So the strength of memory, that's this linear combination here, it's based, a lot of it's based on retrieval, or sorry, rehearsal during encoding. So 
this model makes the assumption, which is a sensible one, that short-term memory, short-term story, again, this is Atkinson, this going at Atkinson Schiffer, has a limited capacity. That capacity is going to be called R. This is the most mathy it's going to get. Okay? The capacity is R. And well, you would often just set that at seven. And until R, uh, or until the number of items that are trying to be rehearsed is less than R, they can all be rehearsed. But once you hit R, the next, so the R plus one item to be rehearsed is going to have to knock something out of short-term store, this sort of rehearsal buffer. Does that make sense? Because something's got to go. So the probability of being of a word being knocked out of this rehearsal buffer is 1 over r. And you're saying, well, how do you determine the probability? A random number generator. That's how. Random number generator. And the rehearsal increases the association between the, the, the stimulus and the representation of the word. That's that meaning, the thing I was talking about, tree, shrub, whatever. And as I said, you have the association between the stimulus and the context, and that is increased, those values, those, those, these values here increase depending upon how many rehearsals you get. And item retrieval is based on a prompt by the experimenter. The experimenter, of course, is you typing to a computer. It's just running a, a, a computer program. So it's, was this a word on the list? So you give the computer program 10 words, let's say, to study. And then you have the computer program give it recognition. So you have 20 words, 10 of which it's seen before, 10 of which it hasn't seen. And it has some, some threshold. Let's say it's 0.4. It's not always 0.4. You, this is a weak. This you set what the threshold is, and then can the item be is the item retrieved as uh, is it a yes? So it makes a yes/no decision. So retrieval itself. As I said here, is a linear combination, the joint contribution of the context, all other items, and the item itself. The item itself, by the way, when, when you're presenting it back, was tree on the list, is the ultimate retrieval cue. Right? Because it's the actual item. So just that being there is going to increase the probability of the item being recognized. That's how false alarms work, right? Just, be, just the item just being there increases the probability that that item will be recalled. Oh, sorry, recognized. I shouldn't say recalled. I should use the proper term. Put both of those points up. So the strength then is the sum of all the associated strengths of the list. This explains something really nice. It explains why recognition is easier than recall. 
because you have the item itself, which is going to increase the likelihood that an item is, is, is recognized is, is, is said to be on the list, because you actually have the item itself, which is going to increase the association of the item with the context. If you don't have the item, you have to go back without that extra thing of, oh, there's the item again with the context, and see if anything's above, hypothetically, let's say 0.4. So here's how this kind of works. And it's amazing what you can find when you type words in to Google, and it gives you a diagram literally from Wikipedia about the, about the SAM law, which is pretty great. So, queues are assembled. In other words, that's where we're adding all these things up, all these queues, all these other items, uh, the context, etc. The item is the item itself. So you've been given the word tree already, and now you're asking, is that on the list? We're searching among all the items to see if tree was there. We evaluate. This is we being the we are all computers at this point. We evaluate the recovered item. So is this greater than 0.4, hypothetically? Yes. No, don't use it. Don't go back and try again with the next item. That's the sort of logic of how this, this thing makes decisions. This is a very simplified version of a diagram that's actually in uh, the Remakers and uh, Schiffer and Paper, anyway. Okay. This explains, this actually explains quite a lot. Let's pull this, uh, all these up, so I can go stand over there. Okay. So this model explains quite a few things. Longer presentations mean better memory. Why is that? Because there's more rehearsal available. So the more you rehearse, and you would set this as a parameter, each rehearsal increases the likelihood or increases the associated strength of that word by, I don't know, make up a number, 0.025. I don't know. Retention interval effects make sense because the context has changed. Those con contextual changes are subtle over time, but they are changes. And the idea here is the longer time between, between study and recognition, the more change there is in the context. So the context now becomes different. So it can't trigger the, uh, the, it's not similar to the context, as similar as it would be if it was just right after the word was presented. It explains serial position, because early items can get, it, can get uh, higher associate strengths, and recent items are still being rehearsed. Middle items, well, are possibly because you get that one over R thing, get kicked out and don't get rehearsed. It explains something called encoding specificity. In other words, the more like the context something is, the more likely it is, uh, so the more similar the context, the more the better you do on a, on a task. And it explains a ta something called recognition failure of recall. Recognition failure of recall is something that we all have experienced, and this is the idea that if I give you an item right in front of you, you're more likely to recall, to, to say that was a, something you know, than if I just ask you, right? So multiple choice tests 
because the item actually has the answer there, are actually easier than you generating the, the answers. Because the actual item's there. It's the ultimate retrieval cue. Okay, so those are all good things. Okay, it's pretty nice, but there's always buts with these models. And the issue here is that, and I've hinted at this, well not hinted, I've basically said it, there's a lot of assumptions in this model. You know, there's gotta be some assumptions because you're building something mathematical. But it's not just that there's a lot of assumptions. There's a lot of what are called free parameters. You want to have as few degrees of freedom as possible. Oh my god, degrees of freedom comes up in here too? <laughs> you want to have as few degrees of freedom as possible. What if I said to you that I could predict your class grades perfectly? Which I, I, I can tell you exactly what you got on this test. Now, if I said I could do that based on something that I cannot control, that would be impressive. Like, if I said I could do it based entirely on the circumference of your big toe, even if I was only predicting it, you know, like a correlation like 0.6 or something, you'd be pretty damn impressed. I hope you also think I was perhaps magic. But it's impressive. But what if I said I could predict it perfectly? That'd be amazing, right? But not with your big toe. I just need one piece of information from each of you. What'd you get the test? If I'm predicting, if there's 26 people in the class, so I'm predicting 26 marks by, ask, by getting, having 26 values of a parameter and putting them in, cross-referencing them with your name, my model is useless. Yeah. Now, that's not what they're doing. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying this is some shitty model where they're just saying, uh, was tree recognized? Well, then tree gets recognized. Like, they're not doing that. But when you are actually changing free parameters, or changing these parameters so they're free for you to change, that's what they're doing. Uh, threshold's 0.4. Uh, let's see. Uh, R is point is seven. Uh, Every time you uh, rehearse something, it gives a point, uh, uh, point 0.1, point 0.13. Like, you just can't be doing that. This is, by the way, you have to do this. And some of the, it's empirical, right? The value for R being set is a completely reasonable thing to do. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just that it's another thing that can be varied. The idea of what the threshold is. Right? The idea of what the threshold is, you set that, you as the programmer. You shouldn't be doing that. That should just happen. Is it, is it possible to write a program where you don't set it? Where it is within a... Yeah. So it's a lot more complicated? It's different. Um, the stuff that I did with the cheeky timing behavior, we had... Jeez, I'm trying to think back. That's so long. We had parameters that we set, but 
they were things like how much time was the animal timing. So that's not really a parameter setting. I think we had one free parameter in ours, and we explained 99.7% of the variance of the behavior. So that doesn't make me, that's not me being magic, that's Ken Chang of Macquarie University in, in Australia being magic. And that's me and Rob Hampton going, sure, that sounds great, let's do that. <laughs> Even though Ken was third author, it was like, try this, and I'd sit down on my computer and type some more, and it happened. There are assumptions you build in that, the few, well, the, basically the idea is this, the fewer free parameters, the better. The fewer things that you're assigning values to, the better. And I think this has a lot of them. Right? And he's trying to explain you know, all of human memory. That's pretty impressive. So it's going to have some assumptions. One of the things that always struck me, and I guess I understand why, but this may occur to you. Why aren't all items recognized when one item's recognized? Because if everything's connected, and part of the context is all the items around it, and if tree is associated with coffee, and then another one of the words is uh, window, and we get a point one there, but then it's also with the context, and why is it that when one word's recalled, it doesn't just fire all these associations and make everything recognized? Well, that's probably because of the way the things actually programmed. It that, 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 that the point one here, or the point on one, or the point two, or whatever it is, is a probability of something actually, of coffee make a, I keep wanting to say fire, because it's like a neural network, but of coffee activating the window is only point one. That's probably all it is here. So the probability becomes very, very small of that. Also, the, the matter of a random number generator, which is odd to me. I doubt, I, I doubt biological systems are built with a random dysfunction. In fact, I know that way. It's the only way you could do it, really, and be fair, sort of. But biological systems. Again, this is better than anything I've ever done. I'm sitting here criticizing it after I've read it, and it was, you know made when I was writing stupid Star Trek games on a common path. So. Let's do something easier and less mathy. Let's talk about levels of processing. This is, a, um, the article in fact that I have linked on the website for you to read is by Craig and Lockhart. It is literally the most cited article in experimental psychology. I checked yesterday. The total as of yesterday, it has been cited 12,299 times. That's nothing. Actually, that's lots. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good. If you get something over a couple of hundred, you're pretty happy. Like you're having an impact, right? 12,000 is a lot. So that's Gus Craig and Bob Lockhart from University of Toronto. Gus Craig, uh, didn't know Bob Lockhart very well, Gus Craig knew pretty well. Uh, he used to hang out by the beer keg at all graduate student parties. Uh, 
him, he was he's Scottish origin, he's Canadian. And Ian Spence, the other Scottish professor at the University of Tien's department, would hang out by the here, drinking beer. It's not my stereotype at work here. They did that. But they always came to the graduate student parties, but we'd have a couple of kegs and they'd just be sitting there. And they'd be, would you like another beer brought back? Yeah, sure. How's it going? I'm really hammered. Yeah. <laughs> so the idea here is that is not really a model. If Gus were standing here, and I don't know why he would be, uh, but if Gus were here, he would tell you that it's not a model of memory, and it's not a systems approach, it's a way to organize data. By the way, Craig and Lockhart, usually first author matters more than second author, this was determined by a coin flip, and poor Bob Lockhart came second. <laughs> they published it another one a year later with the names reversed. It's only been cited like 4,000 times, so it's not as, as important. So memory is not a passive thing. Memory is, is, is the result of encoding. Memory is the result of encoding. So, and I think we all agree with that, right? That memory happens because you encode something. You code it so it can be stored. So the first things that happens when you, the lowest level of processing is called the perceptual analysis. This is what the word, and again, we're gonna use words here, what the word looks like. Number of ascending and descending letters, right? So the word perceptual, we've got one, two, three, four. We've got these shapes. Not even that they're A's and P's and U's and T's, we just have these shapes. <laughs> the next level is pattern recognition. This is where we're gonna read the word. This is where we're gonna get things like, how many syllables are there? Perceptual, things like that. The sounds, so the perceptions, not just the sensations, okay? And then finally, semantic elaboration. What does perceptual mean? That kind of thing, that's semantic elaboration, that's the meaning of the word. That's semantic elaboration. Make sense? So there's three levels of processing. So, semantic processing produces better memory than perceptual processing. But anything perceptual or just the surface features, it produces better memory. Uh, sometimes it's called conceptually driven versus data driven. Data driven is this, what the word looks like, what it sounds like. Conceptually driven is what does the word mean? What's the concept that's being explained? Wrong word there, but you know what I mean? This is only true with explicit memory. This does not work really with implicit memory. It actually does, but it's a very small effect. The effect is really small. Okay. So if I, if I have you recall words, if I have you rate 
the pleasantness of a word on the scale of one to seven, you have to think about its meaning. If I have you counting the number of ascending and descending letters, that's an ascender, that's a descender, so let's go above and below the one. That's data-driven or a low level of processing. The nice thing about doing those things is they're, they're both with numbers. Your replies are both with numbers. And so it's pretty easy to compare. So then I do like a recall, and you do better on deep versus shallow processing. I do word fragment completion. There's no difference, except that there's always a non-significant difference going in the same direction. It's a very small effect, but it's an actual effect that's been replicated a lot of times. And there's a way you can make that happen a lot, and that's by having people go back and forth between semantic and perceptual process within a trial, within a session of remembering. If they're doing just semantic in a big block or just perceptual in a big block, the effect is very small. The effect gets in, 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 in implicit memory. It actually gets good enough you can find it at a 0.105 level of significance if you do it if you mix them up. Okay. And that was my outside project. Right. Uh, this paper, it's funny, we, we ended this paper by saying, we don't know what this means. <laughs> well, we didn't actually say that. We basically said that with fancier words. We said, uh, interpretations of this phenomenon we leave interpretations of this phenomenon to theoreticians. In other words, we don't know what it means. And the editor said to us, you can't do that. And it's like, but we did. And we did like every other change, but we wanted to leave that there because it's like we didn't know what it meant. So we're not going to speculate. It's like somebody else figure out what it means. So we did that. I'm kind of proud of the fact that I, I, I wanted the, the paper that I have that has the most citations of anything I've ever done ends with me going, oh. <laughs> so I'm happy with that. Oh, yeah, it's, uh, whatever. Pull those up. So deeper semantic processing generally, with especially explicit things, gets better memory. And in fact, this explains something called the regenerate effect. If I have you read a list of words and I have you recall them, you don't do as well as if I have you generate the item. Now how am I going to make you generate the item I want you to, let's say it's going to be tree. I can either have you read the word tree, or I can make you generate the word tree. How would I make you do that? What's some idea? Draw it. But how do I make you draw a tree? i got to say the word tree if you're drawing it. Right? So you're going to read it. Yeah. Good guess. What else could I do? What are some thoughts? Pointed stuff on a picture. Is picture. We don't, we don't want to use pictures versus words. We want words happening here. Could you just describe it? Yeah. One way. Exactly. It's a thing made out of wood that has leaves on it in a forest, <laughs> tree. Or I can have, let's say, old sayings that everyone knows, and I have to fill in the blank, and everybody knows that the apple does not fall far from the blank. 
Now look, somebody's gonna write in something wrong. Well, we can have we can test them on that word if we wanted to. If they write the apple does not fall far from the cart, which is mixing up two sayings, or I think there's a cart saying. Um, Fine, we test them with the word card. But typically, almost everyone's going to know it's going to be tree. Right? So that's another way you can do it. And that's, those are the two typical ways you do it. And you do way better when you generate your own items. Which is why you should write your own notes. Rather than just sitting here, first of all, just reading my notes. As you may have noticed, I can talk about a slide for 25 minutes. <laughs> So what I want you to do is generate your own notes, right? And because you have to think more deeply, you have to do more semantic processing when you're generating your own ideas. Which is something most of us learned as we got through, maybe after a few months in first year, you went, you know, it's way better if I don't just write down everything he says. If I can just get to the key points. Now it's Grodbeck, are the key points these ridiculous stories he tells, or is it the actual content of the course? So this is nice. I like levels of processing. It's given me my, uh, I would say, the, well, it's the my most cited paper, so yay. We need a better memory. Well, when you process things more deeply. How do you know you process it more deeply? You got better memory. Ooh, <laughs> it's a little circular. Isn't it? Right? Okay. And by what I mean a little circular, it's actually completely circular. The effects are there. It's a great way to organize data. Right? And I know I've talked to Bob Lockhart about, or sorry, to, to Gus Craig rather, about this. I didn't know Bob very well. But I've talked, talked to Gus about this, and many people have known as much as me, and saying, you know, it is pretty circular. And he, he's the first to admit, yeah, of course it's circular. We're trying to organize data. We're trying to organize different tasks, right? And as you explicitly say, this is not a model. I think it's a model. It's been predict stuff and organizes data. I'm going to call that a model. Tolvey says that Tolvey and Craig would always argue because Tolvey was really into systems and Craig was into levels. <coughs> so. Tolkien called, called it transfer-appropriate process. In other words, is the context similar to the, for encoding, the same as for recall? So when I have you read a list of words, you can't help but think about the meaning. We are trained to think that way. So if I have you just counting letters, that's not really transfer-appropriate processing. That's what Tolkien says. I, I think that's a little more, what's the word I'm looking for, objective way of looking at it. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's fair. So that's levels of processing, which is like the totally opposite of SAM. SAM's all mathematical. The sort of in-between version of this is the standard memory systems approach that I think is pretty much accepted. So Tolving, and we've talked about this, or we've read about it and I've talked about it, the episodic semantic distinction that Tolving makes is a pretty important one. And one of these is explicit, that's episodic, and one of them is implicit. Semantic memory is implicit. It is not 
necessarily ex uh, accessible to consciousness. Your knowledge about the world isn't something, you have to bring it into consciousness to answer the question. So if I ask you what the capital of Vietnam is, you, when you say Hanoi, well, that's obviously something conscious because you said Hanoi. It doesn't just come out of your mouth without your, your I'm using all kinds of words I don't like. Without your free will, uh, God, consciousness and free will. Somebody, I gotta go throw up my mouth a little bit. <laughs> um, so the notion here then is that, but what you have stored, and the interesting thing is though, not all semantic memory, like it's like, a, uh, how am I gonna put this? You know what you know. But there's a lot of stuff you know that you don't know that you know. Like, I don't know. Uh, and this is often done with uh, geographic knowledge, because people don't tend to think. Most people weren't weird as children and didn't sit down and try to memorize the capital of every country in the world. Because most people had normal childhoods where they weren't weird. Other people did that. What are you doing, David? I'm just memorizing the uh, unit of money in every country in the world, Mom. All right. Did you know that the highest mountain in Switzerland is Mount, Mount Zugspitze? No, David, you're really, really scaring me. When you're eight, you shouldn't be doing that. So. One is definitely explicit, that's episodic. One is implicit in that your knowledge about, I don't know, <laughs> what soup is or how gum works, those, those things are sort of, they're just there. You chew it, you know. There's physiological evidence of a sort, right? There's HM, there's KC, they have that, but they, have, they can form these semantic memories, they can not form them explicitly. There is more evidence mounting about the importance of hippocampus here, but not just in uh, humans. There's, there's stuff that's done with non-humans in episodic memory. It's a tough sell because Tolving doesn't believe that non-humans can have episodic memory because they're not conscious, which always bothered many of us. There are people working on this. Friends of mine, John Crystal's one who works on uh, episodic memory uh, in non-humans. Other ones, Rob Hampton works on this kind of work. Um, in John does it in rats, Rob does it in Reese's monkeys. There's probably something there, the where, what, when, where, the self-referential versus the facts about the world. So like I said, Tolving maintains only humans have episodic memory. The way he defines it, sure, because you can only prove that humans are conscious and you can't really actually prove that. Yeah, yeah how can you even disprove that other animals aren't conscious? You can't. Yeah. So you should stop worrying about consciousness. No, seriously, you do what's called a task analysis. You say, what, what we call episodic memory tasks, what are they like? And they say, well, they have what, when, and where. And they're about just you and nobody else. So people have done work where they teach an animal something only that animal can know. And it has to know, there also has to be a time component. And it has to sort of, where did the memory come from? This idea of source memory. Uh, and there's all kinds of stuff on that. Where did the animal learn that about? It's, did it learn it itself, or is it, is it a fact about the world? Right. Uh, there's a really. If you look at, 
if you go to, if you look up the podcast Spit and Twitches, which is an animal cognition podcast, you go to the episode of John Crystal, you can hear a lot about that. Uh, and you can also download a couple of his articles. Yeah. As an aside, I host that podcast and interview people who study animal cognition. <laughs> Haven't done one in a long time, though. I'm on hiatus. See, I don't agree with this idea, though. Because <laughs> I think it's a crazy thing. I think dividing it into, quote, consciousness doesn't help you. Because if I can't measure human consciousness, I can't. I don't know what it is. And Tobin has said to me and way more important people to me, we all know what it means. And to me, that's just not good enough. It's just not good enough. Now, if he were here, again, he would wonder why he was here. But then he would also, he would probably have a much more eloquent argument. And I would probably go, I'm very sorry. I'm <laughs> you. Uh, but... Very smart, though. By the way, a letter of recommendation for a job from Endel Tolving makes you look really good. <laughs> smart guy. Okay, where would these multiple memory systems, when would they evolve? This is an interesting biological question. Uh, and as most of you know, I have a sort of evolutionary biological background. Why don't we just have one memory system? Persistence of learning. Let's just have that. Well, it's going to happen. Sherry and Schachter, Dave Sherry and Dan Schachter, uh, who at the time were both at U of T. He was a prophet, and he was a he was just finishing up. I think he was just finishing his PhD at that point. Uh, the man who famously told Tolving when Tolving said, you may now call me Dr. Uh, Endel, he said, you may now call me Dr. Shatter when he got his PhD. Um, where's Dan Shatter now? I think he's in Arizona. I can't remember. Um, they thought this up. So you know, one guy studies animal memory, one guy studies human memory, and all an evolutionary angle on this, and not that kind of thing. And trying to figure out when would this happen. And the idea here is when a problem shows up, it cannot be solved with the present system. So that's something like, I don't know. What's the example? Do I use the, yeah. So it's the notion here that our memory for facts about the world doesn't do very well with dealing about autobiographical things. So think about how semantic memory stores things in a pretty clear, it's some kind of propositional network. If semantic memory is doing that, that's not going to do a very good job of, today I did this. Right? That, and we need that as people. Why do we need that? Because we live in, we're social animals. We're probably, except for social insects, we're the most social animal of all of them. Certainly the most social vertebrate. I think that's uh, naked walnuts. The most social primate, for sure. And if I have to remember things like, Keegan was nice to me, so I'll be nice to Keegan. Or Keegan screwed me around, so I'm never going to deal with him again. I have to remember very specific things about me. So that's where episodic memory shows up and gets selected for. So a brand new system shows up. And I have that paper link. You should read it. It's very readable, by the way. I realize it's 30-odd years old, but it's a very readable paper. Uh, and it's a, it's a fun read. Like, they're, 
two very smart guys, uh, sort of early in their careers too, which is kind of great. So birdsong can't be done with single, a uh, simple stimulus response learning. Birds have to remember, have to learn and remember their own species-specific song. Because what's the function of bird song? Well, one of the really big functions of bird song is so males can attract females. And you want to be mating with your own species. It's kind of a waste of time to mate with other species, right? Unless it's uh, in Star Trek or something. So you want, if you're a zebra finch, you want to mate with another zebra finch. You don't want, you know, chickadees showing up going, hey. Thing. So you have to remember your own song and produce that same song. So the females have to remember the song. And the males have to learn how to make, you know, for a chickie, which you will now hear outside, because it's that time of year. And the function, one of the functions of bird song, not call, but song, is basically males saying, hey ladies. That's basically what's going on. There's other things too. It, there's, there's, uh, territoriality and dominance hierarchies and stuff, but it's mostly for mating. Right? So chickadees aren't saying, screams here, which is always the nice thing people say. They're saying, screw me, basically. So <laughs> <laughs> let's do it, whatever. So the females better be able to recognize their own species or they're going to be make, making a giant waste of time. The females make good mate choices. That's pretty typical. So, be a giant waste of time if the females are, you know, oh, a blue jay, what the hell? It <laughs> doesn't work that way. <laughs> Nothing good's going to come of that. Do the females sing? Uh, chickadees, oddly enough, yeah, but most species don't. Most species don't. Most of the time, it's just the males. So, what's happening is the males are trying to attract females, and there's all kinds of stuff about what a good song is. and. Uh, how, what attracts a female, and also how they learn the song. And they have to learn their own song, but there are things like, uh, there are regional dialects of songs. It's very similar to language. Lori has a paper on that, right? Yeah, Lori, Genfoot. Most Lori's, uh, Lori's more into call and song. Lori's more into chickadee dee dee, which means something different with chickadees. Uh, that's call, and that's more things like, get away from me, asshole. Uh, that, that, that's things like, this is my territory. Uh, uh, there's food calls. I'm no expert in that kind of stuff at all. Um, Jen does stuff more on, on song, but also song and dominance hierarchies. This is something she's really interested in. There's this weird thing where three people in the world who study chickadees, they're all in our tiny little university. It's very, very, very weird. When Jen Foote in biology, I was the head of the science division and we were interviewing her and she came to my office and I was just gonna tell her very basic things. This is how it works, blah, blah, blah. And she said, wait, are you you're Dave Broadbeck? And I said, yeah, she said, that one? I said, well, there's only one of us that, yeah. So it was very, very strange because she saw this book on my desk that said, The Black Cat Chickadee. And she went, wait, I think I know who you are. I said, yeah, I've read your stuff. Because the world's, uh, academia is the small, world's smallest town. So some conclusions about models here. Let's pull all these up. Models are really good. I like them because they predict stuff and they make testable, these good ones, explicit testable predictions. 
I like science done like that. I like when it's like they organize data and they say, oh, now I can understand something. And also, I don't know what will happen uh, in this experiment, but my model says this should happen. Let's see if that's true. I really like that approach. The fewer assumptions, the better is one of the really important things here. So while Sam is cool, it also has a lot of assumptions in it. Right? And whenever you see a model uh, in, 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 in any kind of, any life science, psychology, biology, if you ever see a model that someone has that's mathematical and making predictions, that's all great. But take a look and see how many assumptions there are and how many, ta how many things I can fiddle with to make the, the model work with data. You don't want that happening. So you want as few assumptions as possible. Questions? All right. We'll pack that in and I will tell my phone.
thanks for listening to the lecture. Um, all of the audio is available, of course, on iTunes or whatever podcatcher you're using. Just search for Dave, uh, Dr. Dave Broadbeck's uh, Psychology Lectures from Algoma University, which is the most ungainly title ever. Uh, these are released under a uh, um, Creative Commons copyright share like 3.0 Canada. Uh, you can't use these for commercial purposes. Um, you feel free to share them uh, and feel free to mash them up any way you want. But if you do that, that means I get to do the same thing with your stuff. Sort of like the GNU license. Um, I hope you learned something. But if you didn't, I, unless you're one of my students, I really don't care. Um, the music, by the way, for each uh, song, for each uh, uh, episode, <laughs> lecture, uh, is uh, available. They're all podcast, uh, like Podsafe Music. So if you want to uh, find out about the bands, there's links on my website at people.aoc.ca slash broadback. Uh, if those links don't work, just contact me and I'll find uh, I'll find out. Um, often I put links uh, actually in the uh, what I call them show notes or blog posts. So uh, you know, buy these people's music. They're they're making the stuff available out there. Uh, thanks everybody. We'll see you next time. <laughs>